a few years ago, Christians, especially those from a Muslim background, were the number one target for Roman, a devout Muslim in Kazakhstan. He considered them betrayers of the real faith. By betrayers, he meant Christians with a Muslim background. Roman, who, which is not his real name, his real name is, is uh, kept secret for security reasons. Roman had no problem confronting, challenging, and persecuting Christians. He was like many fasting Muslims during Ramadan who intentionally confront Christians, drilling them with questions about their faith with the purpose of tripping them up and even making them question their faith. Last year during Ramadan, Roman went a step farther to express his devotion to Islam. He decided to pay a visit to the local Baptist church in the area for the sole purpose of interrupting betrayers of the real faith. I went to the church service during Ramadan because I considered myself to be a devout Muslim, he says. I wanted to prove my faith to Allah. Roman walked through the church doors, sat down, and began to make his plan. But as the church service started and the pastor began to speak, Roman couldn't force himself to do what he came there to do. He couldn't bring himself to stand up and cause a scene. The words he heard the pastor say touched him too much. For the first time, I heard about a God who loved me, he says. I never knew the Almighty God loved me even though I am not perfect. The surprising and healing truth of a God who loves his creation unconditionally began to wash away a lifetime of guilt. That thought of being loved even though I'm not perfect seriously never entered my mind. I always felt guilty. I felt that I had to earn his attention. The words Roman heard that day focused on love, mercy, and forgiveness grabbed the heart of the persecutor. And then something happened he never expected. Tears, prayers to Jesus, repentance, and joy. Sitting in that church service in a Baptist church, the man who had devoted his life to persecuting Christians became a follower of Jesus. Roman's story isn't unlike another former persecutor of Christians who 2,000 years ago penned the words that we read and cling to today in the New Testament. His name was Saul. His conversion story is the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. It's Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. The particular question that is addressed or that frames the entire passage is this. What happens when those who persecute God's people are suddenly converted to the Christian faith? This is an important question for the church to deal with given the times in which we live. For there's a very real possibility that Christians in America will be facing persecution at some point. And so this is an important question for the church to be wrestling with and to deal with. And Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31 is going to deal with this question. 
It's a passage that many of us are familiar with. It's the conversion of the apostle Saul on his way to Damascus. This is the question that centers around that entire section of scripture. What happens when those who persecute God's people are suddenly converted to the Christian faith? Number one, when those who persecute God's people are suddenly converted to the Christian faith, it will often be because of a momentous, life-changing encounter that they had with the living Christ. Verses 1 to 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters, these were letters of extradition, from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, in order to get this particular passage in its context, what took place here prior to this event is a man by the name of Stephen was killed. He was stoned to death for give bearing witness to Jesus Christ. This man, Saul, basically was present when this man, Stephen, was killed and assented to this man's death. This Saul uh, is so against the Christian movement that he wants to leave Jerusalem and go to Damascus, Syria. Why does he want to go there? Because those who were Jews in Jerusalem were being persecuted for their faith. They didn't want to stay there where they were being persecuted. So those Jews living in Jerusalem went to Damascus, Syria. There was a large contingent of Jews living in Damascus, which is 135 miles north-northeast of Jerusalem. So Saul, with his intensity, doesn't want to just persecute Jews in Jerusalem. He's going to travel 135 miles north-northeast to Damascus to persecute them, and he does so on foot. That would be like me traveling to Millbank to Sioux Falls to persecute Christians who left Millbank to go to Sioux Falls because they were being persecuted in Millbank and to do so on foot. That gives you the intensity with which the Apostle Paul or who would become the Apostle Paul has towards the community of faith. All right? So he's going to travel with the, he has the authority. He isn't just persecuting the church. This individual has the authority to persecute those. So he's going to go to Damascus with letters, giving him the authorization to round up those who are Jerusalem Christians, fleeing persecution in Jerusalem, in Damascus, and to bring them back so that they'll face trial. That's what he wants to do. He wants them to go to prison, maybe even face death. So that's what's going on here. So that's his purpose. So he starts on the Damascus road. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. As he, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Remember, he thinks that Jesus is dead. He's persecuting Christians because they're believing something that's a threat to his way of life and how he thinks. And that's what persecution really is at the core. People who persecute the church view Christianity as a threat. It was true then, and it will be true today. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So he trembling and astonished at the fact that Jesus, whom he thought was dead, is alive. Oh my goodness. Stephen the martyr 
was right. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Good question. (laughs) Then the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was there for three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. So now Saul is in Damascus, and he's praying here, and he's reflecting on his experience. And it is interesting that he has no sight. He's blind for three days. So why is he blind? Well, because Jesus appeared to him as bright light, and the light was so, bl- was so, so bright, it blinded him. Now, it doesn't say in this account. This account of Saul's conversion is stated two more times in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 22 and in Acts chapter 26, both in the first person. This account is given to us in the third person. And in those other two accounts, it says that this happened at midday, at noontime. And the light of Christ drowned out the sun, S-U-N. The light of the sun, S-O-N, was far brighter than the light of the sun, S-U-N. And it blinded Saul. Now, I can't help but think about why is he, why is he not able to see? It's not judgment, but God wants to show him something. What, is, what does God want to show Saul? Saul is now physically blind. And God wants to show Saul that You're physically blind now, but this is a reflection and a mirror of the spiritual blindness that you possess. It tells Saul and it tells all of us that anyone who persecutes the church of Jesus Christ is blind. That this is most likely the case is evident that in Paul's writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we see these words that Paul wrote to the church. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. I can't help but think about the Apostle Paul writing this, thinking about his own conversion experience, because that's exactly what happened. All of this simply to say is that when those who persecute God's people, the church, are suddenly converted, oftentimes it's going to be because they had some momentous, life-changing encounter with the living Christ. It may not be as dramatic as this. Roman experienced such a thing when he went to the church in Kazakhstan to persecute the believers, and he heard a word from the Lord, from the pastor, and it changed him. That's what happens. When those who persecute the church... And they have a sudden conversion, oftentimes because they have been one-on-one confrontation with Jesus Christ and were brought low. Remember, it was, the, it was Saul here. When he saw, the light came, he would, fell to the ground. He was humbled. And he stood right, right there. He stopped his movement. Secondly, when those who persecute God's people are suddenly converted to the Christian faith, they will be incorporated into the family of of God, verses 10 to 18. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, 
And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, before kings, and the children of Israel. That's his calling. For I will show how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Once again, the theme of suffering for the sake and for the will for the name of Jesus is once again present. And Ananias went his way, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, huge right here. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. What is the significance of baptism? Baptism was and is an initiatory ritual for those in the church to be formally accepted into the body of Christ. We're not suggesting by any way, shape, or form that salvation or baptism is a ritual that is salvific, that simply being baptized, you're saved. That's not what it means. But those who are truly baptized, who commit their life to Jesus Christ with all their heart and soul, mind and strength, when you give yourself to Jesus, we ought to be baptized in obedience to Jesus' command. And when we are baptized, it formally is a formal event that communicates to everyone that this person is now welcomed into God's family. And that is exactly what has happened here. New Testament commentator F.F. Bruce, Bruce writes, Baptism in water continued to be the visible sign by which those who believe the gospel repented of their sins, and acknowledged Jesus as Lord, were publicly incorporated into the spirit-baptized fellowship of the new people of God. That's what's happening here. This is significant. We say, well, yeah, we know that people who are, who, we know that people when they are baptized, and we know that when people are truly believers in Jesus by faith, that they will be incorporated into the family of God. Yes, we may know that, but those who are persecutors may have a hard time in believing that. If you're a persecutor of the church, it's going to be very difficult to believe that they're going to be incorporated into the family of God. Saul did so. This tells us this is very important. No matter what anyone says or does, no matter the intensity of the persecution that one may levy on the church, when one truly repents, they will be incorporated into the family of God. Saul is an example of that. Number three, when those who persecute God's people are suddenly converted to the Christian faith, they must disregard those who question the sincerity of their conversion and stay focused on the task that God has called them to. Verses 19 to 22. So when he had received food, he was strengthened physically. Saul was. 
Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? What's happening? They're questioning his conversion. How many of us would be questioning someone who persecuted the church for a long time and had the authority to do so? Would we not question the authenticity of their conversion? That's exactly what's happening here. But Saul increased all the more in strength conceptually and confused the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. What's he doing? He's not allowing to those who are questioning the sincerity and the genuineness of his conversion by focusing on what God had called him to do, one of which was to preach to the Jewish people. This tells us that when those who are uh, persecuting God's people and they experience a conversion, they must be able to overcome and disregard any question by those who say that their, their conversion is not sincere by focusing on the call and the task that God has called them to. That's what this is telling us. Number four, when those who persecute God's people are suddenly converted to the Christian faith, it will be likely that they themselves will suffer persecution. Verses 23 to 30. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates that day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, the leadership of the church, and he, Barnabas, declared to the apostles how he had seen the Lord on the road and that Jesus had spoken to Saul and how Saul had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And so he, Saul, was with the apostles at Jerusalem coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, but they attempted to kill him. So when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. What has happened? The one who was the hunter becomes the hunted. The one who was doing the persecuting is now being persecuted. We saw that in Damascus, and then he went to Jerusalem and experienced the very same thing. This tells us that those who persecute the church and experience a sudden conversion to the Christian faith will often likely experience persecution themselves. In fact, their, 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 their persecution may be more intense because they will be seen as betrayers. That's what this, Paul experienced this, Saul experienced this, and so won't others today who persecute the church if they become converted. Number five, when those who persecute God's people are suddenly converted to the Christian faith, the church will be strengthened and experience peace. Verse 31a. Then the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace 
and were edified. When those who persecute the church are converted, the church is better off for it. The church in Paul's day was better off because the one who was persecuting the church was converted, and they experienced peace as a result. The same is true today. Whenever we hear, either today or in the future, the persecutors of God's people become converted, and it's genuine and sincere, keep in mind that it's going to be beneficial for the church, because there are going to be many in the church who will not accept it. And it shouldn't be so. We need to see whether or not if that conversion is sincere. But if it's sincere, we need to accept them, because the church will experience peace as a result. And finally, when those who persecute God's people are suddenly converted to the Christian faith, the church will continue to experience growth. Verse 31b, And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. The church grew as a result. As I said earlier on, we may be going into a period where the church may experience persecution. And we may see those who persecute the church experience a conversion. And some of these things that are mentioned in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31, is what those who persecute the church will go through. And we need to be aware of that because most likely it's going to happen. When it does, the church will experience peace and it will grow. Kim Shin Jo, a gentle pastor from South Korea, used to be a trained killer. In January of 1968, Jo and a team of assassins descended from North Korea, slipping through the woods in a daring attempt to kill the president of South Korea. The team of 31 commandos made it to within a few hundred meters of the president's residence before they were intercepted. A fierce battle ensued, killing 30 South Koreans. All of the North Korean soldiers were killed except one who escaped and Kim Shin Jo, who was captured. After months of interrogation and through a surprising friendship with a South Korean army general, Kim Shin Jo's hard heart started to soften. Later, he would confess, I tried to kill the president, I was the enemy. But the South Korean people showed me sympathy and forgiveness. I was touched and I was moved. The South Korean government eventually released Kim Shin Jo. Over the next three decades, he worked for the military, became a citizen, and then married and raised a family. Finally, he became a church minister. Today, Jo's life serves as a symbol of redemption for the entire country of South Korea. Reflecting on the day of his arrest, Kim Shin Jo commented, On that day, Kim Shin Jo died. I was reborn. I got my second chance, and I'm thankful for that. Kim Shin Jo found a new birth and God's grace through the power of Christ. But his encounter with Christ came through the unexpected, surprising love of other people. Despite his betrayals and sins, an army officer accepted him just like Barnabas did with Saul, befriended him and believed in him. At one time, he was the enemy of the South Korean people, but in the spirit of Jesus Christ, they surprised him with the startling gifts of belonging, forgiveness, and even citizenship. In the same way, 
The church is called to extend the gift of acceptance so others will find Christ's second chance. God unleashes tremendous power for good when his people surprise the world, especially unlovable people, even those who persecute the church, even our enemies, with the unconditional love, friendship, and forgiveness that God dispenses through his people. Brothers and sisters, there may be a time in the future when we experience persecution as God's people. And when that happens, there's a very real possibility that those who persecute the church may come to the faith. And when they do, let's be like Barnabas, son of encouragement. Let's love them. Not easy. Not easy. Especially if we're victims of the persecution. May God's grace fill you with himself so that his power and his ability to love can be displayed to even the harshest of persecutors that we may come across in the months or years ahead. May that be so. For we are the church. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a powerful story of Saul and his conversion, but his conversion is not the only one. It is told so that those living in the present who may be persecutors, can come and experience the saving, loving grace of Jesus Christ who is alive. For there are many, Lord, who persecute the church today who believe that Jesus is dead, just like Saul. May your power and your presence be at work in the lives of those who persecute the church, both in the present today and who will be doing so in the future. And when your grace and love and power is at work in the lives of these people, may your church be your, be your arms, your hands and your feet, your voice. Help us to be like Ananias and call those persecutors brothers and sisters, even when it's hard to do so. Help us to be like Barnabas and to love them, knowing that when those who persecute the church come to saving knowledge of who Jesus is, the church will experience peace and will grow and be multiplied, which is the very reason why we exist, so that we can serve you and that your kingdom will go forward and conquer the fallen world in which we live. Lord, may your name be glorified and praised, both now and forever and ever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. I will now ask you to please stand if you are able for our final worship song this morning. His mercy is more.
sins they are many they are many but no matter what we have said or done whatever we have failed to do whatever our sins may be his mercy is more Saul's conversion is evidence of that receive the benediction may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, and may you experience his peace, both today and for the rest of the week. Until we meet again, go in peace. Amen.